Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Yesterday, Pat Musitano was shot outside his lawyer's office in Mississauga. Look at the latest on that situation. The Canadian ambassador to the U.S. says there are no current negotiations on the steel and aluminum tariffs. Also, I was joined by the Minister of Education, Lisa Thompson, with regards to the Ontario government's announcement of $1.6 billion to stave off teacher layoffs. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, of course, uh, Pat Musitano uh, was shot outside his lawyer's office in Mississauga and is currently uh, dealing with life-threatening injuries, clinging to life, according to one report. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Susan Claremont, award-winning columnist and crime reporter with the Hamilton Spectator. Susan, good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Bill? Good. Reading your coverage in uh, your story in the spec today, the uh, conglomeration, I guess, of the stuff that you and Steve Bust and, uh, and Nicole O'Reilly have put together with all the, the discussions and talk you've had, I, I, the, the overall sense of this seems to be uh, those who are following this and who study organized crime, we're not at all surprised by this. We're not. I mean, uh, you know, I think, first of all, when you're a lifelong member of uh, a criminal organization like the mob, um, you're life is always in jeopardy. Um, but Pat Mistano has had a very colorful past. And in the recent years, the last uh, couple of years, I mean, there's been an increase in, in mob violence and mob murders uh, across southern Ontario. And um, many of them have touched very close to home, including Pat Mistano's own brother and being gunned down and killed in his own driveway two years ago. And others as well. Uh, and and they, they, what I'm getting a sense here, too, is that you know, we're looking at these things, and you can't look at these things on an individual basis. This all seems to be uh, connected in, in some part of a, a plan in some way, shape, or form. Well, it likely is, but what exactly that plan is is, is a guessing game right now. Um, you know, there are a lot of factors at play here. There is, um, you know, possible retribution for... Um, some of the other murders that have happened uh, in the GTA over the last couple of years. There is the fact that uh, the day before Pat was shot, um, his uncle, Tony Musitano, was buried here in Hamilton. And, uh, you know, he was a powerful figure for many years in, in the criminal underworld. Is it somehow connected to that? And then, of course, there's uh, a new information that's arising uh, regarding Pat's recent criminal activity or alleged criminal activity involving what appears to be a, a fraud scheme uh, connected to a trucking company. Um, so, I mean, there could be a lot of different factors involved. It's hard to know exactly why he was shot yesterday morning. Interestingly enough, I mean, these things are all circling around us here. And, and, and again, people that are trying to make some connections and trying to make some sense of what's happening here. Uh, you don't get a whole lot of information from police, but you know that this is an ongoing investigation. And they've been talking about and uh, this, this whole thing for years now. Absolutely. So uh, Pat's murder, or sorry, Pat's um, attempt murder is being investigated by divisional detectives at Peel Regional Police. Um, but you can bet that Hamilton Police are keeping a close eye on it. Um, uh, Detective Sergeant um, uh, Peter Tom, who has done, who has led many of the investigations uh, out of Hamilton into um, mob hits, including the death of, of Ange, um, told the spectator yesterday that they've offered help to Peel Police 
Um, these are also interconnected. It takes police working together um, across jurisdictions to make these investiga- investigations effective. You know, there's a temptation here for us to try to, you know, equate this with what we've seen in movies, you know, mob movies, whether The Godfather, any Goodfellas, any number of things. And that may seem a little trite to some people, but there are some some parallels here that, that seem to fit. And we know a little bit about, about mob life, et cetera, from those movies, because oftentimes uh, some of the people that have studied that, some of the people that have prosecuted them are the ones that are, are you know, behind the scenes giving them advice on this stuff. Uh, and we get the sense that every now and then in organized crime, there's this, I guess it's a cleansing. I guess it's really about territory, isn't it? It, it is about territory. It's about, you know, these are always turf wars. Um, so, you know, it's been shaken up in the last couple of years. Um, you know, Pat Musitano was the last of the old school Musitano family here in Hamilton. He was uh, the head of the family. Uh, so who knows what? what this means. It's also unclear right now whether there are any um, younger generation uh, Musitanos who are there to to step in um, if Pat can no longer continue as head of the family. Uh, but I mean, so much of it is speculation right now. And, and you're right that you know, we often don't know what's going on. Um, you know, there are a lot of armchair quarterbacks, a lot of uh, uh, experts who keep an eye on these things. But how much of what they say is uh, is based in reality and how much of it is speculation is also hard to know. Um, you know, we haven't had a lot of real hard facts coming out yet on what happened to Pat yesterday or what this means. Well, exactly. And I know these are ongoing investigations and some arrests have been made in some of these other incidents, but you have to wonder uh, about just where the connection is here. And I mean, you know, we've talked about the Musitanos, obviously, Ange, who was murdered a couple of years ago, and, and the attempt on Pat's life, Pat Musitano. But but also tied into this picture, I guess, is, I mean, Cece Lupino, who was, who was gunned down a little while ago, about a year ago, Al Ivoron, who was gunned down in the West Mountain. I've heard from some sources that this is all related, that there's something going on here about who's going to control this territory, I guess. And then I've heard others that, no, no, this is just retribution for what happened to Johnny Papalia way back when. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it could be either of those things. It could also, you know, we've been talking a lot, um, uh, Steve Buist and Nicole Riley and I, who who have been covering this story for The Spectator, have been talking about um, if this is connected and tied in with... um, Pat's more recent activity, which is, again, related to uh, this company that he's been involved in that has uh, been allegedly um, perpetrating a fraud related to to truckers. Steve Bust was actually, you know, he's an award-winning investigative reporter Mm -hmm. here at The Spectator. Uh, Interestingly, Steve was already well into working on an investigative piece on Pat's connection to that story when Pat was gunned down yesterday. So you get a little glimpse of that in our story today, but uh, there'll be a a much larger piece from Steve uh, coming up in the next couple of days on that, which might shed some more light on, on why exactly... Um, Pat was targeted yesterday. Exactly, exactly. Yesterday we had and our Peter Edwards, of course, who's written for the Star and for the Spectator, and uh, n- written a number of books about this. And uh, he made a, a one statement I thought that really kind of stood out, and maybe it kind of underscores all the stuff we're talking about here. He says, "There's no statute of limitations on organized crime." Uh, you know, the Papalia murder happened back in what, in 1997, I think it was. 
Uh, and he said, it said, they don't forgive and forget, and uh, whoever is responsible for this thing. And then you have to start looking at some of the other pieces, and I know that uh, some of the work you've done in, in, the, in the piece today in The Spectator touches on this. It has to do with the Rizzuto family in Montreal and the fact that that, that godfather was killed, uh, you know, and some are suggesting that even Tony Musitano's death, even though it was natural causes, could have been a factor in this, that all of a sudden he's gone, and uh, as Peter told us, that means that, that Pat Musitano's protection was also gone. Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, it, it certainly raises a lot of questions. The um, the fact that uh, Pat was shot one day after his uh, after the funeral service for his uncle and uh, Peter Edwards probably told you because Peter was uh, was at the funeral. Yeah. Pat Musitano didn't go to his uncle's funeral, which may in itself be an indication of something. Could have been a, a rift between uh, the uncle and and Pat, or it, it could have been that Pat was afraid to be out in public, that he was already fearing for his life. Uh, you know, his house has been shot up, his SUV has been set on fire in the driveway of his St. Clair Avenue home uh, in the last few years. I mean, Pat, Pat's life was in jeopardy long before yesterday. Will you, I, I, again, I, th- I think it surprised an awful lot of people this incident yesterday happened in Mississauga, where his lawyer's office was, but it, we're getting indications now that he was actually living there. He, he was, to use your phrase, on the run. Yeah, um, some people have said that. I, I don't know whether that's true or not. We weren't able to verify that, um, but it, it is possible. I mean, his everybody... Everybody in Hamilton who who has an interest in in the mob and and knows about these things knows where Pat Musitano lives. It's it's no big secret. Um, you know, it's it, often you can drive by his home on St. Clair, and Pat would be sitting on the front porch. Um, it was a meeting place for him and many of his friends. Uh, it was you know it's where reporters flocked to yesterday in the wake of of the news that that he had been shot. Um, so it's entirely possible that he was choosing not to live there in recent months. Um, and, you know, he was meeting with his lawyer in Mississauga uh, very early yesterday morning, you know, six o'clock in the morning their meeting was. So uh, who knows, perhaps he was living nearby um, that office. Any idea of what this is doing to the power dynamic? I mean, we knew that there were families that were involved in organized crime here for years. The Musatano is one of them, obviously. And, and, you know, there's some suggestion that there was a turf war and that may be the result of the, the Propelia death uh, back in the late 1990s. But there's also the Lupino family, of course, and others. Uh, we always talk about the influences in organized crime here in Hamilton, whether it was from Buffalo or New York or Montreal. And I guess it was a little bit of everything now. And it's always, I guess, a question in the back of our minds, which has now moved probably to the front of our minds with recent events, as to who's trying to take over here. You know, where where's the power struggle coming from? Yeah, it's a really good question, and you know, I I I don't know who wields the most power uh, when it comes to um, traditional organized crime right now in Ontario. I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, the power is shifting, uh, certainly with. Um, Pat being in life-threatening condition in hospital, I mean, uh, that's significant and shifts the power again. But, you know, it's also important to to know that there are links between um, traditional Italian mafia and biker organizations in Ontario. And we see them 
sometimes working together, sometimes fighting over territory. Uh, you know, we have a good piece in today's paper from our, our colleagues at the St. Catherine Standard from Grant LaFleche talking about how um, criminal activity by the Musitanos in Niagara region actually paved the way for the, the Hells Angels to come in there. So it's incredibly complicated. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if anybody really understands what the power struggles are right now, but, but we, we do know that those struggles are happening. And again, as I say, we're not getting a whole lot of information from police, but they've got a file on just about all of these people that are involved in this. And I guess the, the question a lot of us are asking right now, is this over? Yeah, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that either. Um, I keep saying that, but I mean, it's, it's true. We just really don't know. Um, is it over? Probably not. Um, what will come in the future? I don't know. Um, but, you know, it hasn't... We've we've had um, mafia activity in Hamilton for decades, forever. Um, is it done now? Is this the end of something, or is it just the beginning of something else? Um, my guess would be the latter, that, that this is just the start of a new chapter. Well, because there's so many players here, it's awfully difficult to ascertain just what's going on and who's doing what, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned the biker gangs, and we know that they're a big part of this now, too. Uh, and that's part of that power struggle. So, you know, we really don't know. I'm sure that there's a, a, a little bit of angst and anticipation here. What, what's going to happen in this community? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we don't have uh, police have not identified suspects. They've said uh, as of yesterday that they had uh, not yet identified a suspect or suspects in the shooting from yesterday. Um, we know that there's a history of hiring hitmen, uh, often just low-level criminals um, who are looking to make what they think is an easy buck. Uh, you know, there are so many threads to this, Bill, that it's, it's hard to know where it's going to go. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm anxious to see what Peel Police will, will say today if we get an update from them. Of course, the most important update of all is uh, whether or not um, Pat is is going to make it through this. Uh, I talked to Peel Police already this morning, and the last update their media officer had was that he is still uh, clinging to life in hospital. So, you know, we'll be watching all of that very, very closely today. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I'm waiting for that, uh, I guess, that update from police uh, about what's going on. I mean, we were shocked during the Ivoroni murder investigation about a year or so ago, too, to find out that there was a Mexican connection to that whole thing, and that's where part of the investigation is going on. So, who knows where this one's going to take us? Uh, yeah, when we talk about it being, um, uh, you know, interjurisdictional, it's also international. So, uh, extremely complicated investigation. Absolutely, uh, great reporting by all of you in the spec today, Susan. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Susan Claremont, of course, award-winning uh, crime reporter for the Hamilton Spectator. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Canadian ambassador to the United States says there are no current negotiations going on between the, uh, the states and Canada about the removal of these steel and aluminum tariffs. Now, isn't this the same guy that said a few weeks ago that it looked like a solution was imminent? Not so much, I guess, now. Marvin Ryder from the, the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University joins us to talk about that and uh, maybe even about uh, gas pump stickers, too. How are you doing today, Marvin? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Good. Uh, are you surprised by uh, Mr. McNaughton's words here? Um, I wish I could say yes. The, the, problem, <laughs> I, the problem we have in Canada is that we are working with an American administration, which is 
in the least unpredictable. Uh, so to his point, you're absolutely right. This was the person who just about four or five weeks ago said, hey, by the end of March, this thing's going to be a done deal. They'll have taken the, the tariffs off, and then Canada can approve this deal. Mexico can approve the deal. Then we'll wait for America to approve the deal. Uh, we had not just him saying this, the ambassador saying this, but we had uh, senior people in the administration. You remember Larry Kudlow, who's the economic advisor to Mr. Trump. He said, oh, we'll have this done imminently. Um, I'm trying to remember, there's another person in that. Uh, Mr. Lighthizer said, we're going to take a look at these things. And now we find out that there's just nothing happening on the file. Now, you and I have talked about this before. It doesn't actually require negotiations. Mr. Trump, who applied the tariffs with a stroke of a pen, could remove them with a stroke of a pen. But usually to get Donald Trump to use his pen, you've got to give him something or horse trade or something to that effect. And that's what's not going on at the moment. There's no trading going on, no talking going on, no negotiating going on. And now it seems most likely that this will not happen uh, before, or when I say this will not happen, ratification in Canada won't happen because the tariffs won't be removed in time. We'll get to our summer break in June, and then maybe we won't even have another sitting of Parliament before the election in the fall. So all of this will wait for the next government to deal with. Yeah, but, as you mentioned, though, that's the political schedule, but the reality here is they say he could do it at, you know, in five minutes right now. He could do it right now before lunchtime if he wanted to. If he wanted to, and, and uh, you know, he, he's a very, uh, as we know over the last two years, a very peculiar guy. He seems to have mood swings. He seems to be in the mood to go, do good things and then not do good things. Uh, he's facing a much more difficult Congress to, to get things through, and, and uh, he doesn't necessarily feel like throwing them a bone to get them on side. If he were, for instance, to remove these tariffs, I think that would go a long way to getting the free trade agreement passed by a Democratic Congress. They'd probably ask a lot fewer questions if he gave them something. But with Donald Trump, it's my way. This is the way I'm thinking about things. You've got to come to my side. And that's what makes it so difficult to deal with him. What about the, the, that political mood, though? I mean, we've talked about Trump, obviously, because this whole thing emanated from the White House. It was his idea to do this. Mm-hmm. But we've talked about the protectionist attitude in, in the Congress down there as well, and uh, by Democrats and Republicans. Uh, are, are they looking at these tariffs as a good thing? Um, you know, I think on balance the answer to that is no. Uh, the problem is these tariffs apply to every country in the world. And so there are some countries in which people say this is a good thing. China was flooding the market with steel. Russia was flooding their market with steel. Even to some extent, India was flooding the market with steel. So we're okay with the tariffs on those countries. The problem is that Canada and Mexico are seen as America's two closest allies, and we're collateral damage in this. We did something good to stop bad people from getting into our market, but we didn't really want to stop our good friends from dealing with us. Uh, just this week, Bill, there was a... Um, uh, a company in the United States who sought what's called a 232 exemption, meaning they wanted to import Canadian steel, but they didn't want to have to pay the tariffs on it. And their argument was pretty simple. We can't get this kind of steel in the United States, or there's a shortage of it in the United States. If we could import it, this would help create jobs or at least maintain jobs. Please let us do this. And the government said, nope. No, as long as there's one American source, even if it's backlogged, no, we're not removing it. So, you know, here you've got American businesses begging to have these things removed. Their Democratic counterparts are saying, yeah, I don't want to hurt our businesses, and if it means jobs, hey, I want to be the person who's supporting jobs. And yet somehow uh, this, this is a message that's lost on the administration. I will say this, Bill, I just think 
And part of this is also that we're not on a front burner, meaning if there's any trade negotiations that have got, captured the American imagination, is America and China. They still haven't reached a deal there. They haven't sorted out what's going to do. They're still threatening to impose more tariffs on each other. And it's at least one order of magnitude bigger, that trade dispute, than anything that's going on with Canada around steel and aluminum. So I think for the moment, that's another reason we've been shuffled to the back burner. Is it fair to say, though, that really this this whole thing started, it was imposed as a bargaining chip because of the, the NAFTA negotiations? Well, in part. Uh, so if you go back a year, early 2018, uh, we, along with Mexico, were talking NAFTA. We'd been talking about it since the fall of 2017, and Trump was impatient for a deal. So he pulled out a big gun and he said, look, if you um, you don't get this deal done by, and I believe at the time it was April 1st, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to slap some tariffs on you. Well, April 1st came and he was reassured by Mr. Lighthizer that substantial progress was being made. So he said, okay, all right, I'll give you another month, but we need this by early May. And by early May, again, Mr. Lighthizer said substantial progress is being made, but there wasn't a deal. And then finally, by June 1st, he said, I've had it. I've given you this time. I'm going to put these tariffs on. So we put them on on June 1st last year. We in Canada responded a month later. We, we didn't want to be seen as a knee-jerk. We took our time. We studied it. And also, we didn't apply it against steel and aluminum. We were very surgical to apply tariffs on things that we thought would hurt people in America things like, you know, maple syrup and, and uh, other Canadian goods that there isn't a, a substitute for in the United States. So, you know, I think we did a good job. But, you know, Mr. Trump, once you have him pull the trigger, uh, how to get him to reverse that is very hard to put everything back in the box. And then, so far, I, I can't think of a thing that Donald Trump has backed down from or reversed on. That's just his way. There's only one way, and that's forward, the bull in the china shop approach. But we also know that uh, from past experience that oftentimes he develops policy based on the last person he talked to. <laughs> if, if a Larry Kudlow or a Wilbur Ross says, you know what, you should take those things off, he, he probably might, but it's, it's pretty much got to come from them, doesn't it? Well, it does. You said the last person in, and it's a combination of the last person in and then some sort of an importance ranking. So on those two people you mentioned, Wilbur Ross, who's the Commerce Secretary, and Larry Kudlow, who's the Economic Advisor, of the two of them, Wilbur Ross's view is much more appreciated by Donald Trump or much more willing to follow than Larry Kudlow. So even with his own administration, there are some people he listens to more and and part of our strategy had been to talk to Mr. Lighthizer, who reports directly to Mr. Um, uh, to Mr. Ross, who then reports directly to Mr. Trump, if we could get that stick going. But at the moment, there's just no talking going on, and and uh, I think that's unfortunate. But again, a call could come this weekend. I guarantee you, Christian Freeland wouldn't hesitate to hop on a plane, be down in Washington in an hour, and say, "Okay, let's talk some more." She's open. We just need the invitation from the Americans. And by the way, to that point, I don't expect Wilbur Ross is the guy that's going to make that suggestion because apparently, as we were told, he's the guy that wanted the tariffs there in the first place. He's the one that whispered it in Trump's ear in the first place. So he's obviously one of the few people in, in North America that, that actually thinks tariffs are a good thing. Yeah. Well, this, that's another great question, Bill, or another great point. You know, most economic theorists say the correct thing to do is these multilateral trade deals. Let's negotiate our way forward. Let's figure out the right way to do this. Tariffs seem to hurt everybody. They hurt consumers. They hurt companies. They hurt even the flow of goods. So why are we doing this? But Mr. Ross is kind of an old school fellow. He, he likes the way things were done in the 1950s. And so he wants to go back to that. And I will say that's kind of a tone of the Trump administration. Some policies we haven't heard discussed in 40, 50 years. 
um, and, and he's a champion of that. So I don't think he'll lead the charge. On the other hand, I don't think he is as close as we want him to be. I think if he saw some pervasive evidence or persuasive evidence, excuse me, that could open the door for him, he might go to Mr. Trump. But as I say at the moment, I think their focus is more on China. All right, we'll see what happens uh, in the days and weeks ahead. Let's, I got to ask you about these uh, these stickers on the gas pumps. Look, is this yes. this is causing quite a kerfuffle? Uh, for those who may not remember, of course, during the budget they talked about the fact that uh, we know that the go- the Ford government is opposed to the carbon tax, right? Uh, and it's a job killer, according to them, anyway. And it's going to yes. throw us into a recession, according to them. So they want they want every gas station to put these little stickers on the pump that's going to say how much money is actually going for the carbon tax. And I think it's going to end up about what six or seven cents per per liter, something like that. Starts at four point four, yeah. and in four years it'll go up to eleven point one. And so they show the little arrows and the rise over those four years. Now, the other element to this, too, by the way, notwithstanding the fact that 13 cents of the of every liter goes to the provincial government, they don't put that on the sticker, but, no. but be that as it might, uh, this is mandatory now, and, and the fines for this stuff, Marvin, are ridiculous for, for non-compliance. $10,000 a day. If you don't put our sticker on your pump, then you get fined $10,000 a day. Wow. I mean, and now the Ontario Chamber has weighed in on this and said, look, you know, just let's, let's try to be sensible here. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things about all this. I understand where Mr. Ford is coming from. He he doesn't like carbon taxes. He doesn't believe in them. Uh, he believes, I don't think correctly, but this doesn't make a difference. This is what he believes, that he has another way of dealing with carbon, he, which he unveiled last fall. I've read that document, and it doesn't seem to do hardly anything at all. Uh, so, but he doesn't like carbon taxes. Jason Kenney in, in Alberta doesn't like carbon taxes. Uh, Mr. Moe in Sask- Saskatchewan doesn't like carbon taxes. So what he wants to do, especially given that there's an election this fall, a federal election this fall, he wants to help somebody who's singing from the same songbook, and that's Andrew Scheer, elect me and I'm going to kill that carbon tax. Uh, so how does he get people motivated? Well, you put that sticker on the pump, you fill up at least once a week, you see that sticker, and it grinds at you. Oh, my God, look at all that money going for this awful carbon tax. What he doesn't put on the sticker, and which people, I hope, aren't forgetting, is that at the same time that you're paying this at the pump, you're also getting this uh, carbon tax rebate, so to speak. Just uh, yesterday, the federal budget office, this is an independent budget office, doesn't report to any uh, party, said we've done the analysis and most people are going to be a wash. In other words, you pay a little at the pump, you get it back when you pay your taxes. It isn't going to make much difference. The only people it's going to harm are people who are energy inefficient, who've not taken steps to reduce their carbon footprint, or, say, the wealthy, who might have multiple homes and multiple cars and so on and so forth. Yeah, they're not going to get as much back as they pay. But for the average person, in fact, for some poorer people, they might actually be ahead thanks to the carbon tax. That part of the story is nothing that Doug Ford wants to put on the pumps. And I think what you've got here is people saying, is this information that a person filling up needs to have, or is this propaganda? And if it's propaganda, why is there a penalty if I don't want to put your propaganda on my pump? And, and it, you're right. I mean, this is variations on an, an old argument, uh, you know, about governments using government money, really, to, to sell their own brand, really. I remember Mike Harris' government got into some trouble. I don't know if they ever did anything about it, but you remember all the, the highway construction that they were doing when, when he was in power? And it was the, brought to you by the Mike Harris government. You know, the, the, In other words, it wasn't just the province of Ontario that was doing it. It was him. And it was, all, it was advertising. And uh, this is essentially the same thing. It is. So, for instance, in my part, I wouldn't have any problems with a mandatory sticker that explained to the average person 
how much tax is embedded in a liter of gasoline and who's collecting what where. As you know, Bill, on our gasoline, we actually pay a tax on a tax. So there is a federal and provincial excise tax, and then we pay HST on top of that. Most people don't realize just how much tax is, is embedded in this. Certainly when they compare a price of a liter of gas in Ontario to something they see in the United States, they always, oh, this is atrocious. Much of that is not due to the gasoline, the, the basic cost of the gasoline, but the tax structure in the, in the different jurisdictions. So a sticker that explained that in a common sense way, I'm all in favor of, and yes, I would think it should be mandatory on all pumps. But this, which is only telling half a story and only the story that the Ford government wants to hear, I, it's, it's unfortunate that someone thinks this is what should be on all our pumps and made mandatory to the tune of a $10,000 fine. Well, exactly, because uh, t- and to your point, there is already a sticker on the pumps that, talks, uh, d- that breaks that down about how much is HST, etc. Uh, it's been there for some years now. But if we're going to do this, Marvin, let's go all in. Why don't we do this uh, for bottles of wine, too? Uh, how much of a bottle of wine, the, the price of a bottle of wine, how much of that is provincial tax? Uh, let's do it for just about everything else, too. I mean, if we want to get the whole story out there, let's do the whole story instead of just doing this on a piecemeal basis. Well, and, and so that goes back to the question, are we doing this to inform the consumer, help them educate the consumer, explain a complicated system to them, or are we doing this to try to help a federal counterpart get elected? And, and I, I just don't think this is the right way for our money to be spent. I don't think these stickers should be produced. And, and by the way, you know, if something were to change, let's suppose the carbon tax got frozen. Are you going to rip all those stickers off, put a new sticker on, or, you know, Mr. Ford, what if you change a policy around gasoline? Pricing, you'll remember that when he ran for office, he actually talked about reducing the Ontario tax on a liter of gasoline. Do you remember him telling you that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cut about eight cents a liter. Of course, the first part was the removing of the cap and trade, but the next part was he's actually going to slash nearly a billion dollars of revenue by cutting the provincial tax. I haven't seen anything about that. Uh, can we have a sticker that reminds us about that promise that wasn't kept? It, it's just a silly little game that they're playing, but unfortunately it has big consequences. Well, it does, and he, let's face it, he's playing to his political base when he does that. And I don't even mean conservatives, because I, I know a lot of conservatives that, that are actually on side with this, and we know that poll after poll that have been done nationally indicate that the majority of Canadians do support some sort of carbon pricing. Uh, not quite sure how to roll it out, but when you got guys like Preston Manning, who's a conservative, right-wing conservative, uh, supporting this and others, uh, even the noted elected premier of uh, Prince Edward Island, who is a conservative, uh, says he's pretty much okay with that. He's not going to join the legal fight against the, the carbon tax. He may want to talk to Ottawa about maybe massaging their, their law in, in PEI a little bit, but he's okay with that. Uh, which tells you that, you know what, you can be open-minded about this. and Well, not Ford necessarily, but other people do. Well, Bill, your next segment uh, today on the broadcast is going to talk about these terribly unfortunate floods across Canada that is happening. It, to me, that's another little symptom of climate change. What I would remind everybody listening here, I imagine there's a bunch of people listening to us who don't like carbon taxes, but if we pay a little bit now and change our behavior, we might avoid big bills, billion-dollar bills down the road if we could stop some of these ravages of climate change. And again, I know there are people listening to us and say, Marvin, I get that, but start with China first. Start with the United States first. Look, as a, as a country per capita, we release more carbon than almost any other country in the world. Yes, in total, it's much smaller than what China releases with the United States, but on a per capita basis, per person basis, we release a lot more. It has to start with us. We have to draw a line in the sand and say, it's important for us, let's do this. And that's why I support this. Whether we can massage it, sure, I'm always open to massaging it, but we've got to start, and we've got to start now. 
Absolutely. Marvin, thanks as always for the time. Great talking with you again today. Glad to be here. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now we want to uh, address a story that we've been talking about for the last couple of months, I guess, on this program. Uh, the education reforms that were introduced by the uh, provincial government just a little while ago. And uh, it has to do with class size, as you know, and funding envelopes. And there was a great deal of consternation by uh, boards of education right across the province. We talked to the Catholic and the public board here in the Hamilton area, uh, both of whom we were told actually had to send notices out to some teachers indicating that they might not have work for them uh, because of the way things are going. And uh, uh, that, of course, flew in the face of what the province had said at the time, that nobody was going to lose their job. It was all going to be done by attrition. Well, now we find out that the government is addressing those concerns. And to get some clarity on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program the Minister of Education for the province of Ontario, Lisa Thompson, uh, back here on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. You're very welcome. Good morning. It's a pleasure. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, what you've heard over the last couple of weeks and, and, and the, uh, well, let's, I guess, uh, bottom line this, the solution for it. Very good. Well, I've been hearing a lot of misinformation. That's what I've been hearing. And uh, I welcome the opportunity to talk about our commitment to education and an education that works for everyone in this province. For instance, you know, it's regular routine processes that the school boards on an annual basis start reviewing their roster in advance of getting their GSN funding pocket, if you will, for the next school year. And again, they, it was just a notice of possible surplus. It has nothing to do with our education plan because, quite frankly, I'm very proud to set the record straight today to let everyone listening know that our plan includes investing in teachers. We have set aside an historic $1.6 billion to ensure that not one teacher will lose their job because of our proposed changes. And I look forward to working with school boards to ensure that very thing happens. Why the, why the, the well, yeah, I guess you categorize it as misinformation, but the consternation by so many different boards, where, where, where was the disconnect here? You know, um, I would tend to say some people behind the scenes, some forces behind the scenes, perhaps try to hype up a regular annual routine of boards balancing the roster. They're balancing how many people are coming back from long-term leaves, if you will, maternity leaves, how many people are retiring. It's an annual routine process. And I think the hype that was, tr that was perpetuated was trying to try to lay blame on us when, quite frankly, they were wrong. Because let's think about some of the misinformation that we heard ahead of the budget. We heard from opposition that we were going to cut kindergarten. Well, that was just wrong. And now they're creating fear and anxiety that teachers are going to be losing their jobs. Again, I'm very proud to share with you today that we're investing $1.6 billion in attrition protection funding to ensure not one teacher loses their job because of our proposed changes. I guess one of the questions a lot of people are asking uh, this morning, Minister, uh, this, is, this is certainly a good news story, but uh, why wasn't this part and parcel of the initial announcement that, that, that this was going to be covered financially? Well, again, uh, we had a couple of, of streams happening in tandem. I released my education plan on March 15th, Education That Works For You, and in tandem with that, we were coming forward with our budget. And I'm very, very pleased with our budget and what we have announced. And quite frankly, across the province, 
I think you would tend to hear that our budget has been well received. But that announcement was was expected, or at least hoped it was going to be ex- uh, explained at the same time. Uh, I mean, we, we've talked to a number of different people at boards of education. I'm sure you've heard from some of them as well. Uh, and these are vet- veteran people. I mean, they've been through this process time and time again with different governments at diff- different times of year with different pressures. They they were worried. They were concerned about this. Was was because there was not enough information given at the time. Well, the the fact of the matter was, we took our time to be very measured and to get it right, because the GSN formula, which is essentially their operating envelope for the next school year, is based on a number of different factors. And again, we needed to be very clear with our direction, and we were clear with school boards that we would be coming out with our GSN funding by the end of April. They shouldn't have been surprised at that. So they knew that already? Okay, because that's okay. That seems to be news to us. Then uh, uh, they were seemingly in a quandary and didn't know exactly when this was going to be happening, uh, which may have explained some of the angst. So how does how does this roll out now? Does this get done on a board by board basis? Uh, because obviously they're going to have to crunch some numbers now and come up with a total for you. Yes. Well, uh, overall provincially, we've increased our funding in terms of our grants for student needs. And we look forward to working with our school boards because, again, you know, we've heard loud and clear. We we are committed to listening and consulting. And we heard loud and clear during our consultation last fall and from a variety of stakeholders through the winter months that we need to make sure that everything we do, and I'm completely committed to this, is investing in student success. And so we're going to work with our school boards to make sure that, if there's an opportunity, efficiencies will be realized. All the while, we're going to be targeting investments into the classroom for our teachers and to ensure that we are absolutely focused on student success. Minister, I do thank you for the time. You know it's a busy day, and I, you've got a lot of po- folks to talk about, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes for us today, too. Well, thank you very much. And again, I look forward to speaking to you anytime. I'm very proud of the direction we're heading and our vision for education in Ontario. We're going to get it back on track, and our students are going to be absolutely our number one priority, supported by the best teachers in the world. Education Minister Lisa Thompson, again, Minister, thank you. We'll uh, stay in touch, of course, as this rolls out. I appreciate you joining us today. Obviously, we're going to try to get some feedback from the uh, the boards of education about how they are going to ha- handle this situation and how they feel about this announcement. Uh, but they did find money. And uh, I know I know the cynic in, in me might think, well, this is a response to some of the pushback that they got because it is a month coming. But uh, we were told at that time that there wasn't going to be any money, but all of a sudden they found $1.6 billion. We'll see just how the boards respond to that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.